Hello, and welcome back to The Joint Venture. Inspirate your insights. My name is Oliver, and this is the podcast where we look back at the creme de la creme of Inspiration's coverage of the last week, news and analysis. Joining me this week, we have our head of news, Robert Leeming, and our energy and infrastructure analyst, Capucine Guillet. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Rob. In this episode, we are going to look at the latest news. There's a lot of activity in the electric vehicle space. We're going to cover that. And if you want to find out more about electric vehicles, you can come along to Inspiratia's Electric Vehicle Summit 2023, which will be held in London on April the 25th. More information to follow. Also in this episode, Capucine has been taking a look at the Skidmore report. Again, the Net Zero review. Much more comment and analysis to follow. So, as always, we start with the news desk. Rob, what do you have for us this time? Well, thank you, Oliver. As mentioned, aforementioned, there's been a few electric vehicle charging uh, developments this week. The biggest one was Shell buying Volta, which is a big uh, US-based charging company. Um, The deal was worth $169 million, and it continues a now very long-running trend of oil majors stepping in and buying up um, fledgling or relatively fledgling um, charging companies. Volta has um, 900 charging kiosks and quite innovatively uh, gets a lot of its revenue from adverts that are displayed on the charging screens. This is a very novel company structure and uh, I think I remember Volta making a few headlines with its SPAC IPO not long ago. Is this a bit of a riskier move than we would normally expect from someone like Shell? Well, yeah, I mean, there are risks certainly involved. The SPAC um, merger um, happened about a year or so ago now. Um, They've since kind of been discredited a little. Um, There was lots of them, a flurry of them during the pandemic. Since then, they've kind of been viewed as a a bit of a kind of backdoor to listing. And now they're being better regulated, which kind of put a lot of people off using them. But... Um, The reason that this deal in particular is a little bit of a risk is that um, Volta's business model is still largely unproved at the moment. For example, in the third quarter of last year, um, the company did see rising revenues, but they were not enough to cover costs, which prompted a net loss of around $43 So um, there's still questions certainly around Volta, but obviously Shell has big money to try and get this company on track. Well, presumably it's only buying in now because it thinks it's undervalued and uh, has the potential at least to turn a revenue. Uh, to be clear, the, what we're talking about here, the SPAC, this is the special purpose acquisition company whereby uh, a company gets listed on a stock exchange, uh, more or less a shell company, and then acquires a uh, exterior company, which yeah. you know, can get around a lot of the uh, rigmarole of the traditional IPO. Exactly, that's the, the main virtue of it was that it, it, you can kind of do it very quickly, but at the same time a lot of the oversight perhaps is stripped from it that, that you would normally get. Normally before a big IPO there'd be a huge roadshow and so on and so forth, but the SPAC stripped that away. So so let's see if Volta has uh, learnt from those mistakes. Um, what else have we got in the EV world? Well, also, um, this time in the UK, EO Charging, which incidentally also tried to do a SPAC, but they were kind of at the, at the back end of the queue, and their SPAC didn't quite work out as they'd expected. Um, but um, they're kind of turning over a new leaf, and they've launched a new fleet charging um, platform, 
um, and it's it's going to concentrate basically on businesses that, that require cars, vans, trucks, buses, and offer them fixed um, fleet charging solutions. The platform's backed by HSBC and a number of other UK banks. Why are they making the jump to EV fleet charging? Yes, that's a very good question. Lots of big companies um, like Amazon, for example, are, are kind of fully signed up to um, the idea of having fleets. Um, you know, lots of Amazon delivery vans are now electric, but kind of smaller to, to medium-sized companies have been a bit slow on the uptake, mainly due to um, kind of bad education about what the benefits are of switching to electric, um, because obviously it's a much bigger risk for a, a medium to, 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 to small business to kind of make an investment. Um, so what this platform is aiming to do is to kind of exploit that market of um, small to medium businesses that are looking to make that jump and um, offer them a, a solution that they can rely on. Moving away from battery electric vehicles, there's plenty more news in the battery space. Rob, what's happening in Texas? Well, the London-based Go Street uh, storage fund this week has announced that they've bought a 75 megawatt battery project in Texas, um, which represents the fund's largest acquisition in the United States so far. Um, as a result of the deal, the, the platform, which is London's first listed energy storage fund, by the way, will have a portfolio that consists of 26 projects with a capacity of 973 megawatts. So what's drawing the focus of these UK funds to the US? Well, Gore Street has predominantly in the past been a UK-based um, platform, but over the last few months they've begun to look um, internationally. Um, they've done a few deals, I think, in Germany and France in the past, and a couple in the US. The main reason they're now turning the attentions to the United States is, of course, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is making um, investments in the US renewables market much more attractive at the moment and is attracting UK investors. Yes, as we've covered before, the IRA is uh, making a lot of eyes move across the Atlantic. Um, it'll be a challenge for the European uh, regulators to see if they can hold as much of that as possible. Uh, speaking of the EU market, what's going on in Ireland? Yes, good old Ireland, which of course we discussed last week when, the, when there was a whole host of um, offshore and floating uh, deals announced. This week, uh, we're turning our attention to um, co-located projects, in this case, solar and battery storage. SSE have announced their first uh, co-located project in Ireland. The company plans to build a 10 megawatt battery energy storage system backed by a 21 megawatt solar project in County Wexford in Ireland. Yeah, we've seen a lot of collocation projects recently. So is collocation going to be a key theme in 2023? It certainly looks that way at the moment. As you mentioned, there's been a lot of co-located projects that have been announced in recent months. Um, the main benefit of co-location, of course, is that it reduces costs. And at the moment, um, prices uh, for developing renewables projects are going up. So co-location obviously becomes much more attractive. Thank you, Rob. Anything else before we wrap up? Yes, the, the very last story that I want to mention this week is about Marguerite, a new solar platform that they've launched this week. It's going to have 60 million to spend that they're going to use to invest in solar projects across Europe. Uh, the new platform is going to receive money directly from Marguerite 3, which was a, a, a fund that was raised a couple of years ago, and it's going to be used to back greenfield solar projects. 
it's thought at the moment that the new platform is looking to build uh, a portfolio of up to two gigawatts um, with projects in France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Austria, and Poland. Okay, so that's quite a wide-ranging brief. Why have they decided to move forward with this now? It certainly is. Well, the rationale behind this new platform um, is thought to be the high premiums for ready-to-build assets uh, that are being seen across the market at the moment, as well, of course, as the agility that ready-to-build assets offer. Thank you, Rob. This week, Capucine has been looking at the Skidmore Report. This is the Net Zero Review, published by the government two weeks ago, in which Chris Skidmore, MP, gave a frank view of the current trajectory towards net zero, which has been met by controversy in some quarters and welcomed in others. Uh, Here to dissect all that for us now is Capucine. Hi, yes. So this report is over 300 page long, so there is a lot to say about it. And as you said, it was written by a conservative MP, but who's also a former energy minister. So this review basically makes a lot of recommendations to seize opportunities from creating a green economy in the UK. And it aims to provide a roadmap to help support the UK's commitment to delivering net zero by 2050. That's right. And listeners to the podcast will have heard my take on the nuclear part of the, that report last week. But uh, Capucine, perhaps you can give us a slightly more general view of the key recommendations made in the report. Yeah, so the recommendations actually tackle a lot of things from housing to farming to energy. So, for instance, the, re- the review suggests task force should be set up for the deployment of onshore wind and solar power. But um, this has not been well received. People in the market would have preferred clear targets on onshore wind and solar farms in England. Okay, so there's been a recommendation for a task force. Anything a bit more concrete than that? Yes, I think the UK is trying to display the range of fiscal levers that the government should employ to drive the net zero delivery. And so this is quite interesting because they've kind of copied what the Inflation Reduction Act in the US is doing. So the review is including financial incentives such as grant funding, taxation, co-investment and loans as well to support businesses and mobilize investment. And so this is hopefully to trigger more economic growth at home. Yes, there certainly seems to be a growing call um, in the UK market for something similar to what's been done in the US with the IRA. Yes, so in this report, has there, have these suggestions got more concrete or is this all a bit vague at this point? As listeners of the podcast can read on the Inspiratia website, I generally agree with Jonathan Maxwell, who's CEO of SDCL, that the focus should have been more on the efficiency of energy systems and on managing waste more sustainably. In my opinion, there is no point in growing what's already expanding very fast and what's already out there if what is out there is not utilized to the best of its capacity. So I think the UK is missing the point with this report, as actually are the French who recently passed a law on accelerating the production of renewable energy. So in my opinion, the aim should not be acceleration or growth, but it should be about working on exploiting what's already at our disposal and utilizing these resources, whether they be our engineers or materials, better. And I think the report only gives 
partial recommendations on how to do that and mostly leaves out the idea of energy efficiency to to focus on creating more and uh, more growth, uh, more financial incentives. So better solutions, for instance, would be the upscaling of already existing assets. And that's a hot topic already at the moment in, for instance, the, the offshore wind sector. And I think generally that would be a better approach to the delivery of net zero. So we've mentioned that the report has divided opinions. Both of my guests today, Rob and Capucine, were out this week taking the temperature of the market and speaking to key practitioners, as Capucine's already mentioned. I wonder if uh, either of you picked anything else up about uh, what the opinion generally is about this review. Well, I I would say that it was, for the most part, widely praised. Um, But there has been um, some little points of discussion. For example, Skidmore... Uh, suggests the creation of uh, a net zero department in the government, um, which would kind of oversee um, the the journey towards net zero. But a lot of people are saying, well, you know, that's going to could potentially muddy the water even more because you're going to have a government department that's basically you would imagine would get oversight over all other government departments' um, net zero policy. Um, so people are saying, well, won't that just make decisions even more difficult to make? Won't it make interdepartment arguments even more um, common than they already are, given that there'll suddenly be another body um, kind of acting um, within the, the government sphere? Um, another thing that's that's been suggested, certainly in some quarters of the market, is that um, perhaps the government should put, put in place KPIs, basically yearly KPIs, that would um, steer the industry and uh, steer the government itself towards achieving particular milestones on the way to net zero. The government itself has shied away from doing this in the past, instead opting to concentrate on creating an environment that is um, hospitable to, to investment. Um, a lot of people in the industry would say, well, we don't really want government meddling. Um, we'd rather them stick to the previous role, but other people think that um, KPIs would offer good oversight. Well, I guess it very much depends on where you put the KPIs. If you put a KPI on, you know, for example, the kind of targets we're used to the government issuing, say so many gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by X year, then it's another thing for, first of all, the government to be held to account to. And then they can't actually um, definitely influence the outcome as much as some people would perhaps like them to. So maybe a KPI for internal government matters rather than on the market itself. Would yeah, be the exactly. The government prefers dates that are kind of a long way in the distance. They don't want to kind of put themselves on the line to having to uh, to be accountable to a to a figure that's you know a year down the line. Um, they want stuff that they can that's far in the distance. Yes, and having said that. Many of Skidmore's aims um, set a 2025 deadline, so in in two years, meaning the last two years of the current government. Ultimately, this is an advisory report. There's nothing in it that, that, that compels the government to follow any of these recommendations. And the opinion polls at the moment suggest that there's potentially going to be a new government um, in two years' time. So obviously they're going to alter policy they're going to look at this report with different eyes. Okay, well, with that in mind, this was written by a former government minister, Conservative MP. Is there any question of political bias in this, or do we think it's been played straight by Skidmore? 
Well, I think you've got to remember that Skidmore is standing down at the next election, so he has potentially uh, less of a need to be biased in one one direction or another. Um, having said that, obviously, there's been the mention of, of the lack of um, attention paid to onshore wind. Hard topic for the government, as we've very well reported on before. Yes. Thank you, both of you. And one last thing before we pack up for the day. Um, Rob, last week you made some scurrilous accusations of the king, Poundbury Village, the former Prince of Wales's approach to uh, managing the Duchy of Cornwall. Uh, in the last week, there's been some developments uh, in, I think, this story, which may have changed your views. Tell us what's been going on. Well, first of all, I, I was very much in favour of, of the king because he plays the cello. That's, that's what I was saying last week. Oh, yes, week. I forgot about that. Um, but, yes, we talked about Poundbury and him potentially not living up to uh, some of his green c- credentials. Uh, but then this week, he, um, or the palace, announced that, that the profits from the offshore Crown Estate auction um, are going to be given away to good causes. Uh, what we've got to remember is that the, as a result of the of the uh, current system put in place by the Crown Estate, um, the companies bidding in these rounds, such as the recent round seven, um, are paying billions of pounds um, to take part in them, um, meaning that the Crown Estate was walking away with quite a healthy profit from the recent auctions. This profit is now not going to go into the coffers of the Crown Estate. It's going to be given away to, as I say, good causes. Do you have any idea what those causes are yet? I don't think those causes has been have been named quite yet, but uh, I think they wanted to make the point that the, the money is not being kept for their own devices. Okay, so the view of Charles as someone who is profiteering off renewables has perhaps been dispelled a little. Yes, for the time being anyway. But there will be future auctions and we'll see what happens with those profits. That'll be interesting to follow. Thank you for joining us once again. And as I mentioned at the top, we are putting the pedal to the metal in the world of EVs on April the 25th for our Electric Vehicle Summit. Details of how to attend the conference can be found in the description below. We'll be uniting EV decision makers from government agencies, institutional investors, project sponsors, manufacturers, advisors, law firms, developers, and many more under one roof. I look forward to seeing as many of you there as possible. I'd like to say one final thank you to Rob. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you to you, Kevin. Thank you, Oliver. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.